Well, good morning again. Uh, it's good to be here, um, both in person and, again, thank you if you're joining us live stream. And I invite everyone, whether at home or here, to grab your Bible or your phone and turn it to 1 John. We've been in the book of John, the Gospel of John, here for quite some time, and we're going to take a short break and jump to the book of 1 John. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's really close to the end. So start at the end of the Bible and work backwards to the left, and you'll find it. And turn to 1 John chapter 4. And we're just going to look at one paragraph today. Chapter 4, verse 7 through 12. Now, I said to someone earlier in this week, I said that uh, this paragraph is so good that it really doesn't even, even need a sermon, that you could just read it, say amen, and then just sit down and we can dwell on it all day. And for those of you getting really excited, oh, yay, we get out early for lunch. No, that's not what we're going to do today, I, because just like it doesn't need a sermon, you could probably preach a thousand sermons on this one paragraph and you're just scratching the surface. And so I certainly will not cover everything or do it justice, but it is rich. And so I encourage you to read along, keep it open, and keep referencing back to the words of God. Let's read this passage together. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Would you join me in saying a word of prayer and ask God's help in this? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love. And I ask as just a simple messenger this morning that your truth, your word, your love would be communicated to all who have ears to hear. Lord, would your spirit work in this place and at home and would you cause your love to be put on display in such a way that we stand back in awe and we give you praise and so that all glory would go to you. Lord, I pray that only truth would be spoken, no lies or mistakes or falsehoods. God, would you be praised by the preaching of your word. Amen. Well, I'm not a very good artist. Uh, stick figures are a struggle sometimes, even for me. But a few years ago, we went to one of those painting places where they teach you how to paint. We had like Jubilee's birthday party there. And we painted these. And I thought this was mine. And then as we we're getting out of the car this morning, the kids go, that's not yours. I say, yes, this one was mine. Because we all did them and they all look the same to me. Because what is this a painting of? You can say it out loud. What's a painting of? 
An owl, thank you. I was nervous that, oh, they may not recognize it, then the whole illustration is shot. No, it's an owl, right? Yeah. But what I learned at that painting party, even if this may not be mine, I still contend it's mine, but is that you have to start not with the owl, but you start with the background, right? The instructor said, okay, grab your colors, and you painted the whole canvas one color, and you start from the background, and you work your way forward to get to the focus of the painting. And so this is what I want to do this morning, is I want to start with some background, lay a foundation, and work towards the point of the painting. I want to get somewhere. Put that there as a reminder that we are headed somewhere. Where our passage today is obviously about love, right? The word love occurs, I think, eight or nine times in different ways. It's obviously about love, and it starts pretty boldly in verse 7, where John says, Beloved, let us love one another. There's the command. There's the instruction. Let us love one another. So if you leave here today, and if after this moment you completely tune out, and you're like, what was that sermon about? Let me say it again. Let us love one another. If you're wondering, what is this passage about? Let us love one another. What do I want you to remember a month from now? Let us love one another. But why? Why should we love? How should we love? What does that love look like? Those are some good questions that John seems to answer. So he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. What an important for there. See, love, it originates from God, is produced by God, it flows from God, is created by God. What I want you to imagine this morning is a fire hydrant. A big fire hydrant and it's on the side of the road and, and it's just gushing water because somebody unscrewed the, the valve, I guess that's what it's called. And, and it's just gushing water out into the street. God is the fire hydrant that is gushing out love. That's what he does. He produces love. But the question that may linger in our minds is, okay, if God is this fire hydrant of love over here, producing, creating, and originating love, what does it have to do with me over here and my love for you? God's over there producing love. I'm over here. How, why does John connect these? Another good question. So he answers it. He answers it in both a positive way and in a negative way way. First, the positive, where he says, anyone who does love is born of God and knows God. There's so many truths, just he kind of shorthand, you know, puts into this short statement, huge theological thoughts. But you are born of God and you know God when you love. So you're born of God, you're adopted into his family, called by him, you're called his child. In fact, in the book of John, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is what we were. We were once enemies, but now we're united to God through Jesus Christ, adopted into his family, and he calls us his. We belong to him. To him. 
Other passages say that we are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And not only are we considered God's children, but then there's this intimacy that we have with him because we know him. We don't just know about God. We know God, John says. You are connected to the fire hydrant. This fire hydrant of love that's spewing out love, we are connected to that fire hydrant because we've been adopted by God and because we know God. That's how it works. That's how you are able to love because you're connected to the source of love. But then John flips it and he then gives the negative example He says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. See, if you're just a hose laying there and there's no water coming out, John looks at you and says, you're not connected to the source. You're not connected to love if there's nothing coming out of you. Or if the wrong things are coming out of you, you didn't connect to the fire hydrant, you connected to the sewage truck or something else that's coming out of you, if it's not love, you're not connected to the fire hydrant of love. That's how it works. If you are connected to God, you belong to God, you know God, you will love. It's the only way it works. For outside of God, there is no love. There is no love that does not come from Him. And this phrase that John used... That God is love is so important. And we got to be careful here. It doesn't say that God is only love. Some people like to make it sound like that, that that God is only love. Therefore, he doesn't uh, hold anybody's sins against him. He's not just. He's not righteous. He doesn't have any wrath. He's just love and just is only love. No, it doesn't say only just says he is love. God is also just, holy, righteous, and so many more things. But part of God's nature, part of his identity, of what makes God God, is that he is love. It's also important that we recognize that it's not some outside standard of God that God lives up to. It doesn't say that God loves really well, or he perfectly meets the test and passes with 100%, the love test. No, there's no standard that says if you do all these things, you're loving. No, God defines the test. He defines what is love, what is not love. That's what makes him God. He doesn't have to obey the rules of some outward standard that somebody else set up. He sets it up because he defines it. He is love. It also doesn't say that love is God. We can't flip it. We can't worship love. But we do worship the Lord of love. Now, this is where I think our fire hydrant illustration may fall a little short. So you're going to have to use your imagination. Because a fire hydrant, it's connected to like a water supply or a well, isn't it? But that's not the way the fire hydrant of the Lord's love works. You have to imagine this fire hydrant, place it out in the middle of the desert on some big sand dunes. There's not a drop of water for miles around. There's no underground pipes. There's no secret oasis. 
there's just nothing but dry earth and there's this fire hydrant placed out there and that's the love of God that continually makes its own love and gushes it out, creating a river flowing from it. It doesn't get love from somewhere else. God doesn't go looking for love and take it from here and then pass it on to give it to someone else. He produces it himself, perfectly and completely spewing out love. Now, in the Bible, they didn't have fire hydrants, so they used other expressions like springs and wells and fountains. Listen to Psalm 36. It says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. God is the fountain of steadfast love and it never runs dry. We drink from the fountain and the river of his delights. The river of his delights. I love that phrase in that psalm. When was the last time your thirst was quenched by the river of the Lord's delights and your soul revived by his steadfast love and fountain of life. See, God doesn't go looking for love. He makes it. In fact, it's always been this way. This isn't just a New Testament concept. In the Old Testament, God even defined himself as a God of love. When he was introducing himself and sharing his name with Moses on the mountain when he's giving him the Ten Commandments, he says this in Exodus 34, 5-7, He comes down to share his name and it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Notice here that that phrase, steadfast love, in God's name that he gives to Moses, it appears twice in that short description of who God is. The word steadfast means unmovable, unwavering, faithful, never ceasing, consistent, constant, and firmly fixed. And and then God gives these additional descriptors and he says that that unmovable love, I keep it unmovable. He keeps steadfast love. And then that love that is so big, he abounds in consistent, constant love. And the overflow of his love never runs dry. I don't know, uh, some of you may enjoy, like I do, those survivor shows. Have you ever watched those where they just take people and they throw them out into the wilderness somewhere? And sometimes it's one person or it's a couple people or whatever. But they have to live off the land and they have to survive. Uh, One of those shows years ago, I think it was Survivor Man or something like that. This guy got dropped out into a pretty dry desert. And he was walking around and, and he, after some time, was pretty thirsty and he came to a river in the desert. 
And he was just so excited that he got to a source of water. The water was going to save his life. And he looked at the camera and he gave some good survival tips. And he said, when you're walking in a desert and you come across a river of water, don't leave the water. Genius. Like, who would have thought? But then he does add this little additional thought. He said, and when you follow the river, always follow it downstream. Because if you walk upstream, you may come to the source and then it would disappear and then you're left high and dry again. But if you follow a river downstream, you'll eventually, the river will get bigger and bigger and almost always leads to the ocean or a lake and civilization. You'll find other people next to the rivers or the lakes or the oceans. Well, what happened next to this man was pretty unfortunate. He follows the river downstream, but this was one of those very few rivers in all the world that just got swallowed up by the desert. Instead of the river getting more and more wide, it got narrower and narrower, and then eventually it just hit some rocks and just disappeared, got sucked down into the ground. And I remember the guy looks at the camera and he says, well, that's disappointing. I guess this river failed me. And what made it even more disappointing is he had to continue his journey, and on the way he gave another survival tip that if you come across some elephant dung, you can squeeze the water out of that, and somehow you can survive by drinking elephant dung water. And uh, I said to myself at that time, I think if I was in that position, I would quote the Apostle Paul and say, to live is Christ and to die is gain, and I'd just lay down and accept it. Uh, I'm not doing the elephant dung water thing. But the river failed him. Not so with the Lord. Not so with the river of his love. He is forever faithful, forever true. His river never runs dry. He never disappoints. He is constant, consistent. He does not shift his circumstances, but he cuts through the hardest of life's circumstances and the driest of deserts. And his love is steadfast and unshakable. God is love. That's the kind of never-ending love, never failing love that John says here we're connected to that's the kind of love coming out of the fire hydrant that we're connected to and so we should love one another so church let us love one another for we're connected to that kind of love so there's our background but John I think is bringing us to a point He's trying to get really specific. Instead of just painting with a broad brush that God is love, he gets really narrow and he zeroes in on the point of the painting. He wants to be precise and tell us about this love of God. So look again at verse 9. It says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us. It was made manifest among us. Manifest means to make something known, to show or to bring forth, to bring to life in a real way in someone else's life. The reality of God's love comes into a sharp statement here when it says that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Not only is God love, but he has directed his love towards you. So I want you to hear this. This is really important for us. 
the fountain of love, the river of steadfast love that never ceases is made real in your life through his son, Jesus Christ. In Christ, the river of God's love floods into your heart and captivates your soul. Jesus is the point of the painting, the focus that John wants us to keep our eyes on so that you can see clearly the love of God. In the next few verses, John here goes on to describe what the love of Christ looks like, how it was made manifest among us. And like an artist's precision to paint a picture, it should leave us in awe. So look in verse 10. It says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loved us first. That's really important for us to remember. God loved you before you did anything. Before you were even created, He loved you. John isn't saying here that you don't love God. But he is saying that the kind of love that God has for you is a bigger, more rich, more full, more true kind of love. So what's the difference? What's the difference between our love for God and God's love for us? Why does it matter that he loved us first? Well, if you think about it, God He is lovely, right? He's full of grace, truth, mercy, compassion. He is creator God and all-powerful. If anyone in the universe deserves to be loved, it's God. So to love God is what we should do, right? In fact, in the book of Jeremiah, one of my favorite passages, Jeremiah chapter 2, it says that the heavens stand appalled. I love that. Like stars are looking down at you and I and they're like, Can you believe it that there is God and then these people, instead of loving God like they should and enjoying him, they go digging in the ground and try and find their own satisfaction somewhere else. It just doesn't make sense. We should love God because he's lovely. But think about how God loves us. God loves us when we are unlovable. When we have not just not done anything to deserve love, we've done the opposite and we've lived in rebellion and as enemies of God. We are sinners that have rejected His love for us and gone off and worshipped animals and beasts and ourselves and all kinds of other things. We are anything but lovable and yet God loves us. We read this passage already, but it's worth reading again out of Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, we don't earn God's love or deserve it in any way. We live as his enemies, and yet he loves us. The hymn writer Charles Wesley, I think, asks the right question. 
when he says, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love! How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? How can it be that my God shouldst die for me? God puts his love on display in the cross of Jesus Christ and the propitiation for our sins. And talking about love, I love that word, propitiation. And I'm going to have my volunteers come on up. My sons, Jeremiah and Judah, they're going to come up. They're going to help me illustrate this a little bit. I love this word, propitiation, so much. And if you're in the youth, you know that. We probably talk about propitiation at least a few times a year. But here's what it means. It says that you commit sins against God, and you deserve His judgment. And in the book of Revelation, it talks about how God is storing up the judgment for your sins in a bowl filled with His wrath. There's a bowl filled with wrath with our names on it. This is what you have earned by the way that you have lived, by the rejection of God, the rebellion that we feel in our hearts, every lie, every mistake, every, every hurt person that you've gone out there and done something prideful and arrogant and you've taken something that didn't belong to you or whatever the sins that we deal with are, they earn us wrath from God. And let's say, Jeremiah, he's a dirty, rotten sinner. And I know, I'm his dad. So he's a dirty, rotten sinner, like all of us. But God has a bowl of his wrath just waiting to be poured out onto him. And it will be poured out in an eternity's worth of hell. Separation from God, separated forever from the hydrant of his love, feeling nothing but pain. Shame, guilt, and rejection. Forever living apart from God. The wrath of God being poured out for your sins. But here's propitiation. That word means a wrath-averting sacrifice. A substitutionary atonement. A, a one that steps in and takes the place of. A wrath-averting sacrifice. So this bowl of wrath that was meant for Jeremiah, instead, because of Christ's love, and Jesus is being played by Judah here, Jesus says, I'll take the wrath. On the cross, he says, I will bear their penalty. I will absorb their punishment. And this bowl of wrath moves from the sinner to Jesus. And Jesus on the cross says, I love them enough to pay the price and absorb the wrath. And here's what happens. The wrath of God is poured out on Jesus. But I want you to look here. And he leaves the bowl empty. The bowl of God's wrath for your sins and mine. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, he takes them away. And not only is the bowl empty, God just throws the bowl away. He says, I no longer need to keep track of the sins. They've already been paid for. All of your sins, past, present, and future. You're going to sin next week? It's on the cross. Next year? It's on the cross. You're going to die a sinner? 
It's on the cross. Jesus has already absorbed that wrath. There is no more guilt. There is no more shame for those who belong to Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation for our sins. He has absorbed all of the wrath. It's gone. There is no more. The bowl is empty and the bowl is thrown away. Propitiation is love made manifest. Hallelujah for propitiation. Thanks, guys. You can go sit down. This is the love of God. It is a love that only He can produce. And I would ask if you've never understood the incomparable love of God and known what it is to, ha- to have your sins paid for, to be forgiven, to feel the freedom of release that says, I'm no longer guilty in the eyes of the Lord. If you've never drunk freely from the river of his delight and accepted the love that is directed at you through his son Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, I'd urge you today, believe. Believe in him. Believe that he did that, not just for me, not just for those in this room, but for you. Believe that he did that for you. The bowl that's got your name on it today can be emptied and thrown away. Be connected to the fire hydrant of the love of God that is steadfast and never ceasing. My prayer is that you would believe today. But now John, after he's defined love for us with this precision of the cross, John goes back to his original command. Look at verse 11. He repeats himself. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He so loved us. I know when the kids were younger, Jolene's parents, they lived in England, and so we'd communicate through Skype often. And one of the things they used to do when the kids were young is uh, Grandma and Grandpa would get on and say, Hey, Jeremiah, how big are you? And he'd say, So big. And he'd always do that with his arms. How big are you? So big. And he'd do it like a hundred times and just loved it every time we got together. Here's what John is saying. He goes, How big is God's love? So big. It is so big. Have you seen Jesus on the cross? His love is so big. And if it is so big, we also ought to love one another. It only makes sense that we love one another. So what you need to picture now is this fire hydrant of love that if you've ever been near one, imagine one that's got one of those just big, huge, like water main kind of fire hydrants. And it's gushing love at such a rate that it looks dangerous. You're like, kids, don't get too close. If you get into that stream, it's going to knock you down and send you flying down the street. God's love should look awe-inspiring and slightly dangerous. Because it is so big. And when we hook up to that force of love, we can't help but love others. In fact, this is what Jesus prayed for in the book of John. In the prayer that we've been looking at the last few weeks, this uh, high priestly prayer where Jesus prays for you and I, he prays this in John 17, 26. Listen to this carefully. 
He says, I made known to them your name. He's talking to the Father. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Notice what, what he says there. The love that the Father has for the Son, Jesus prays that that love would be placed in us. So Jesus is praying that we would connect to this fire hydrant. And when it is, we will love one another. The ought that it has here in verse 11, where we ought to love one another, is not the kind of ought like it's an obligation. Because God loves us, we're not obligated to then go love others or because we owe Him one. We don't try and pay back God's love for us by loving others as if it's some kind of love debt. No, it's the kind of ought that's like a fish ought to swim. A bird ought to fly. The sun ought to give off heat. It's the ought that says that's what it was created to do. That is its nature. That's what it was made for. So it ought to do that thing. We, as new creatures, adopted children of God, we have a new nature connected to God. It's a nature of love. It's a nature of steadfast awesome love of Christ that originates in him and flows through us to one another. So we have our background of God's steadfast love. We have John pointing and picturing the propitiation of Jesus Christ on the cross. And with that image, we can go and love one another. What an amazing picture that paints. It's far better than my owl. But John has one more point to make. So I want to look at verse 12 before we close our time together. And let's read it. Verse 12 says this. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. See, the most beautiful of paintings hidden in a box or covered up with a tarp, it goes unenjoyed, unappreciated, and undervalued. If nobody sees the painting, nobody will be able to stand in awe of it. Nobody here except for those few that have been to my house have ever seen this owl painting before. But now you've been able to see it, and maybe in a little bit enjoy it. But if nobody sees the painting of God's love, how will they benefit from it, enjoy it, and stand in awe of it? What John says here is is that God's love is perfected in us or made complete in us. Now, what he isn't saying is that it's somehow lacking and it needs a little bit more of our love to fill it up. As if God got like a 98% and he's just looking for that 2% more of love that you and I have to offer. No, that's not what he's saying by we complete it or perfect it. The only thing that's lacking about the love of God is the presentation of it. The putting it on display so that other people can enjoy it, benefit from it, feel it, and they can stand in awe and gaze at the steadfast love of God. Because see, here John says, 
No one's ever seen God. You can't just go look outside and see God and see His love. We're not able to do that. But when we love one another with this kind of love, we make the invisible visible. We manifest God's love in this world to one another so that everybody can see and everybody can enjoy the love of God. You see, God has already so loved the world. All we are left to do is present it to them. And so John says it twice in this passage. Beloved, let us love one another. Why does he have to say it? Because what's our temptation? Even as believers, our temptation is to do this. Jesus Christ was a propitiation for their sins, but wait a minute. Don't you see what they did to me? We go pick up the bowl and we start to put things back in it. And we say, no, no, it can't be that way. They're getting off too easy. Don't you see how they hurt me? I can't forgive them. You may be able to, but I can't. Look at what they did. And they did it on purpose. It wasn't even a mistake. It wasn't an accident. This came out of the sin of their heart. They sinned against me. And I want to hold this against them, and I want, I can't forgive them. Or even some of us. We grab this bowl and we start to pile things back in, and we hold it over our own head. And we say, God, you can't love me like that. You don't know what I've done. I know what I've done. I know what I've thought, what I've said, how I hurt those people around me. And we start to keep account of our own sins. And we say, that is unforgivable. I know you're loving, but you can't love me that much. And we start to keep piling in these sins that we hold against ourselves. And we feel the shame and the guilt all over again. And here's what John is saying. He's saying, beloved, drop the bowl. Drop the bowl. Forgive one another and accept the forgiveness that he has for you. Believe that he has the power to truly forgive any sin in your life or in the life of others. So love like he loved. And when you feel weak, when you feel like you can't, rest in him for when you are weak, he is strong. It's his love flowing through you. You don't have to produce this yourself. So when you need help, pray. Pray, God, I need help forgiving that brother or sister. God, I need help forgiving that person who harmed me. They live as my enemy and they still are my enemy. And yet that's right where I was. And so I need to love them like you love me. Drop the bowl, beloved. Forgive like God forgave and accept his forgiveness for you. Hold the painting of God's love up high and complete the picture of God's grace so that the world would stop and stare and be in awe of His love. When people look at Overland Hills Church, when they look at your family, when they look at your life, can they explain your love in no other way except to say that is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit where you are connected to this source of love 
that is just unexplainable is your love only recognizable as the love of God. He is the master painter. He has already won the victory. He has already dropped the bowl. He has already forgiven. All we must do is put it on display. Believe that he can do that in you. So, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And it's made manifest through the propitiation of Jesus Christ for our sins. And it is perfected in us when we put it on display. May it be so of us. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love. If we would just stop and dwell on the amount of love that you have for us. You so loved us that you gave your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to die a gruesome death on the cross as payment for my sins. Lord, that is love. Give us the strength as we go from here to put that kind of love on display for the world to see so that all may marvel at your steadfast, immovable love. Amen. Would you stand?